Chapter Two of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two, The Fool's Wisdom. Like the inexplicable run on a particular number at the roulette table, there often seems to be a run on some particular phenomenon thrown up by the wheel of daily life. Such a recurrent incident was the meeting of Norma and Jimmy Padgate during the next few weeks. She met him at Mrs. Deering's. She ran across him in the streets. Going to spend a weekend out of town, she found him on the platform of Paddington Station. The series of sheer coincidences established between them a certain familiarity. When next they met, it was in the crush of an emptying theatre. They found themselves blocked side by side, and they laughed as their eyes met. "'This seems to have got out of the domain of vulgar chance and become destiny,' she said lightly. "'I am indeed favoured by the gods,' he replied. "'You don't deserve their goodwill, because you have never come to see me.' Jimmy replied that he was an old bear who loved to growl selfishly in his den. Norma retorted with a reference to Constance Deering. In her house he could growl altruistically. "'She pampers me with honey,' he explained. "'I'm afraid you'll get nothing so Arcadian with us,' she replied. "'But I can provide you with some excellent glucose.' They were moved a few feet forward by the crowd, and then came to a halt again. Uh, "'This is my ward, Miss Aline Marden,' he said, presenting a pretty slip of a girl of seventeen, who had hung back shyly during the short dialogue, and looked with open-eyed admiration at Jimmy's new friend. "'That is how she would be described in a court of law, but I don't mind telling you that really she is my nurse and foster-mother.' The girl blushed at the introduction, and gave him an imperceptible twitch of the arm. Norma smiled at her graciously, and asked her how she had liked the play. "'It was heavenly,' she said with a little sigh. "'Didn't you think so?' Norma, who had characterised the piece as the most dismal performance outside a little Bethel, was preparing a mendacious answer, when a sudden thinning in the crush brought to her side Mrs. Hardacre, from whom she had been separated. Mrs. Hardacre inquired querulously for Morland King, who had gone in search of the carriage. Norma reassured her as to his ability to find it, and introduced Jimmy and Aline. Mr. Padgate was Mr. King's oldest friend. Mrs. Hardacre bowed disapprovingly, took in with a hard glance the details of Aline's cheap home-made evening frock and the ready-made cape over her shoulders, and turned her head away with a sniff. She had been put out of temper the whole evening by Norma's glacial treatment of King, and was not disposed to smile at the nobodies whom it happened to please Norma to patronise. At last King beckoned to them from the door, and they crushed through the still-waiting crowd to join him. By the time Jimmy Padgate and his ward had reached the pavement, they had driven off. "'One if we can get a cab,' said Jimmy. "'Cab?' cried the girl, taking his arm affectionately. "'One would think you were a millionaire. You, you can go in a cab if you like, but I'm going home in a bus. Come along, we'll get one at Piccadilly Circus.' She hurried him on girlishly, talking of the play they had just seen. It was heavenly, she repeated. She had never been in the stalls before. She wished kind-hearted managers would send them seats every night. Then suddenly, "'Why didn't you tell me how beautiful she was?' "'Who, dear?' "'Why, Miss Hardacre. I think she is the loveliest thing I have ever seen. I could sit and look at her all day long. Why don't you paint her portrait in that wonderful ivory satin dress she was wearing to-night?' and the diamond star in her hair that made her look like a queen. Did you notice it? Why, Jimmy, you are not paying the slightest attention. 
"'My dear, I could repeat verbatim every word you have said,' he replied soberly. "'She is indeed one of the most beautiful of God's creatures.' "'Then you'll paint her portrait?' "'Perhaps, dearie,' said Jimmy. "'Perhaps.' Meanwhile, in the broom, King was giving Norma an account of Jimmy's guardianship. She had asked him partly out of curiosity, partly to provide him with a subject of conversation, and partly to annoy her mother, whose disapproving sniff she had noted with some resentment. And this in brief is the tale that King told. Some ten years ago, John Marden, a brother artist of Jimmy Padgate's, died penniless, leaving his little girl of seven with the alternative of fighting her way alone through an unsympathetic world, or of depending on the charity of his only sister, a drunken shrew of a woman, the wife of a small apothecary, and the casual mother of a vague and unwashed family. Common decency made the first alternative impossible. On their return to the house after the funeral, the aunt announced her intention of caring for the orphan as her own flesh and blood. Jimmy, who had taken upon himself the functions of the intestate's temporary executor, acquiesced dubiously. The lady, by no means sober, shed copious tears and a rich perfume of whisky. She called Aline to her motherly bosom. The child, who had held Jimmy's hand throughout the mournful proceedings, for he had been her slave and playfellow for the whole of her little life, advanced shyly. Her aunt took her in her arms. But the child, with instinctive repugnance to the smell of spirits, shrank from her kisses. The shrew arose in the woman. She shook her vindictively, and gave her three or four resounding slaps on face and shoulders. Jimmy leaped from his chair, tore the scared little girl from the vixen's clutches, and, taking her bodily in his arms, strode with her out of the house, leaving the apothecary and his wife to settle matters between them. It was only when he had walked down the street and hailed a cab that he began to consider the situation. "'What on earth am I going to do with you?' he asked whimsically. The small arms tightened round his neck. "'Take me to live with you?' sobbed the child. "'Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings we learn wisdom.' "'So be it,' said Jimmy, and he drove home with his charge. As neither aunt nor uncle nor any human being in the wide world claimed the child, she became mistress of Jimmy's home from that hour. Her father's pictures and household effects were sold off to pay his creditors, and a little bundle of torn frocks and linen was Aline's sole legacy. "'I happened to look in upon him the evening of her arrival,' said King, by way of conclusion to his story. "'In those days he managed with a charwoman who came only in the mornings, so he was quite alone in the place with the kid. "'What do you think I find him doing? "'Sitting cross-legged on the model platform with a great pair of scissors and needles and thread, "'cutting down one of his own night garments so as to fit her, "'while the kid, in a surprising state of déshabillé, was seated on a table, "'kicking her bare legs and giving him directions. "'His explanation was that Miss Marden's luggage had not yet arrived, "'and she must be made comfortable for the night. "'But you never saw anything so comic in your life.' "'He leaned back and laughed at the reminiscence, not unkindly.' Mrs. Hardacre, bored by the unprofitable tale, stared at the dim streets out of the broom window. Norma, on friendlier terms with King, the little human story having perhaps drawn them together, joined in the laugh. "'And now, I suppose, when she's grown a bit older, Mr. Padgate will marry her, and she will be a dutiful little wife, and they will have happy and humdrum ever after.' "'I hope you will provide her with some decent rags to put on,' said Mrs. Hardacre. Those the child was wearing to-night were fit for a servant-maid. Jimmy would give her his skin if she could wear it, 
said Norland, somewhat tartly. This expression of feeling gave him, for the first time, a special place in Norma's esteem. After all, a woman desires to like the man, who in a few months' time may be her husband, and hitherto Morland had presented a negativity of character which had baffled and irritated her. The positive trait of loyalty to a friend she welcomed instinctively, although, if charged with the emotion, she would have repudiated the accusation. When the carriage stopped at the awning and red strip of carpet before the house in Eaton Square, where a dance awaited her, and she took leave of him, she returned his handshake with almost a warm pressure, and sent him away, a sanguine lover, to his club. The next morning, Constance Deering, taking her on a round of shopping, inquired how the romance was proceeding. "'He's had me on probation,' replied Norma, "'and has been examining all my points. I rather think he finds me satisfactory, and is about to make an offer.' "'What an idyllic pair you are!' laughed her friend. Norma took the matter seriously. "'The man is perfectly right. He's on the lookout for a woman who can keep up, or perhaps add to, his social prestige.' who can conduct the affairs of a large establishment when he enters political life, who can possibly give him a son to inherit his estate, and who can wear his family diamonds with distinction. And it does require a woman of presence to do justice to family diamonds, you know. He looks round society and sees the girl that may suit him. Naturally he takes his time and sizes her up. I have learned patience, and so I let him size to his heart's content. On the other hand, what he can give me fails above the lower limit of my requirements, and personally I don't dislike him. "'Mercy on us!' cried Constance Deering. "'The man is head over ears in love with you.' "'Then I like him all the better for dissembling it so effectually,' said Norma. "'And I hope you'll go on dissembling to the end of the chapter. I hate sentiment.' They were walking slowly down Bond Street, and happened to pause before a picture-dealer's window— where a print of a couple of lovers bidding farewell caught Mrs. Deering's attention. "'I call that pretty,' she said. "'Do you hate love, too?' Norma twirled her parasol and moved away, waiting for the other. "'Love, my dear Connie, is an appetite of the lower middle classes.' "'My dear Norma,' the other exclaimed, "'I do wish Jimmy Padgate could hear you.' Norma started to the name. "'What has he got to do with the matter?' "'That's one of his pictures.' "'Oh, is it?' said Norma, indifferently. But feminine curiosity compelled a swift parting glance at the print. "'I imagine our guileless friend has a lot to learn,' she added. "'A few truths about the ways of this wicked world would do him good.' "'I promised to go and look round his studio to-morrow morning. Will you come and give me his first lesson?' asked Mrs. Deering mischievously. "'Certainly not,' replied Norma but the destiny she had previously remarked upon seemed to be fulfilling itself. A day or two afterwards his familiar figure burst upon her at a private view in a small picture-gallery. His eyes brightened as she withdrew from her mother, who was accompanying her, and extended her hand. "'Dear me, who would have thought of seeing you here? Do you care for pictures? Why haven't you told me? I'm so glad!' "'Love of art didn't bring me here, I assure you,' replied Norma. Then what did? Jimmy, in his guilelessness, had an uncomfortable way of posing fundamental questions. In that respect he was like a child. Norma smiled in silent contemplation of the real object of their visit. At first her mother had tossed the cards of invitation into the waste-paper basket. 
it was advertising impotence on the part of the painter-man, whom she had met but once, to take her name in vain on the back of an envelope. Then, hearing accidentally that the, the painter-man had painted the portraits of many high-born ladies, including that of the Duchess of Wiltshire, and that the Duchess of Wiltshire herself, their own Duchess, who gave Mrs. Hardacre the tip of her finger to shake, and sometimes the tip of a rasping tongue to meditate upon, whom Mrs. Hardacre had tried any time these past ten years to net for Hendon Court, their place in the country, had graciously promised to attend the private view in her character of Lady Patroness-in-Chief of the painter-man. Mrs. Hardacre had hurried home and had set the servants' hall agog in search of the cars. Eventually they had been discovered in the dust-bin, and she had spent half an hour in cleansing them with bread-crumbs, much to Norma's sardonic amusement. The Duchess, not having yet arrived, Mrs. Hardacre had fallen back upon the deaf dowager Countess of Solway, who was discoursing to her in a loud voice on her late husband's method of breeding prize pigs. Norma had broken away from this exhilarating lecture to greet Jimmy. He kept his eager eyes upon her, still waiting for an answer to his question. What did? Norma, fairly quick-witted, indicated the walls with a little comprehensive gesture. Do you call this simpering, uninspired stuff art? she said, begging the question. Oh, it's not that, cried Jimmy, falling into the trap. It's really very good of its kind. Amazingly clever. Of course, it's not highly finished. It's impressionistic. Look at that sweeping line from the throat all the way down to the hem of the skirt, indicating the picture in front of them, and following the curve, painter fashion, with bent-back thumb. How many of your fellows in the academy do get that so clean and true? I've just met Mr. Porteous, who said he couldn't stay any longer because such quackery made him sick, said Norma. Jimmy glanced round the walls. Porteous, the royal academician, was right. The colour was thin, the modelling fracked, the drawing tricky, the invention poor. A dull soullessness ran through the range of full-length portraits of women. He realised, with some distress, the clever insincerity of the painting. But he had known Fuljame, the author of these coloured crimes, as a fellow student of the Beaux-Arts in Paris, and, having come in to see his work for the first time, could not bear to judge harshly. It was characteristic of him to expatiate on the only merit the work possessed. "'Mr. Porteous even said,' continued Norma, "'that it was scandalous such a man should be making thousands "'where men of genius were making hundreds. "'It was taking the bread out of their mouths.' "'I'm sorry he said that,' said Jimmy. "'I think we ought rather to be glad that a man of poor talent has been so successful. "'So many of them go to the wall.' "'Do you always find the success of your inferior rivals so comforting?' asked Norma. "'I don't.' She thought of the depredatory American. Jimmy pushed his hat to the back of his head, a discoloured Homburg hat that had seen much wear, and rammed his hands in his pockets. "'It's horrible to regard oneself and one's fellow creatures as so many ghastly fishes tearing one another to pieces so as to get at the same piece of offal. That's what it all comes to, doesn't it?' The picture of the rapt duke as garbage floating on the tide of London society brought with it a certain humorous consolation. That of her own part in the metaphor did not appear so soothing. Jimmy's proposition being, however, incontrovertible, she changed the subject and inquired after Aline. Why hadn't he brought her? "'I'm afraid we should have argued about full James painting,' said Jimmy, with innocent malice. 
"'And we should have agreed about it,' replied Norma. She talked about Aline. Maul and King had been tail-bearing. It was refreshing, she confessed, once in a way, to hear good of one's fellow-creatures. Like getting up at six in the morning in the country, and drinking milk fresh from the cow, it conveyed a sense of unaccustomed virtue. The mention of milk reminded her that she was dying for tea. Was it procurable? "'There's a roomful of it. Can I take you?' asked Jimmy eagerly. She assented. Jimmy piloted her through the chattering crowd. On the way they passed by Mrs. Hardacre, still devoting the pearls of her attention to the pigs. She acknowledged his bow distantly, and summoned her daughter to her side. "'What are you affichéing yourself with that nondescript man for?' she asked in a cross whisper. Norma moved away with a shrug, and went with Jimmy into the crowded tea-room. There, while he was fighting for tea at the buffet, she fell into a nest of acquaintances. Presently he emerged from the cross victorious, and as he poured out the cream for her, became the unconscious target of sharp feminine glances. "'Who is your friend?' asked one lady, as Jimmy retired with the cream-jug. "'I will introduce him, if you like,' she replied. He reappeared, and was introduced vaguely. Then he stood silent, listening to a jargon he was at a loss to comprehend. The women spoke in high, hard voices, with impure vowel sounds and a clipping of final consonants. The conversation gave him a confused impression of Ascot, a horse, a foreign prince, and a lady of fashion who was characterised as a rotter. Allusion was also made to a princely restaurant, which Jimmy, taken thither one evening by King, regarded as a fairyland of rare and exquisite flavours, and the opinion was roundly expressed that you could not get anything fit to eat in the place, and that the wines were poison. Jimmy listened wonderingly. No one seemed disposed to controvert the statement, which was made by quite a young girl. Indeed, one of her friends murmured that she had had that awful filth there a few nights before. A smartly-dressed woman of forty, who had drawn away from the general conversation, asked Jimmy if he had been to Cynthia yet. He replied that he very seldom went to theatres. The lady burst out laughing, and then, seeing the genuine inquiry on his face, checked herself. "'I thought you were trying to pull my leg,' she explained. "'I mean Cynthia, the psychic, the crystal-gazer. "'Why, everyone is going crazy over her. "'Do you mean to say you haven't been?' "'Heaven forbid,' said Jimmy. "'You may scoff, but she's wonderful. "'Do you know she actually gave me the straight tip for the derby? "'She didn't mean to, for she doesn't lay herself out for that sort of thing. "'But she said, after telling me a lot of things about myself, "'things that have really happened,' She was getting tired, I must tell you. I see something in your near future. It is the horse with a white star on his forehead. It has gone. I don't know what it means. I went to the derby. I hadn't put a cent on, as I had been cleaned out at Cairo during the winter and had to retrench. The first horse that was led out had a white star on his forehead. None of the others had. It was St. Damien, a thirty-to-one chance. I backed him outright for three hundred pounds— "'and now I have nine thousand pounds to play with. "'Don't tell me there's nothing to Cynthia after that.' "'The knot of ladies dissolved. "'Jimmy put Norma's teacup down "'and went slowly back with her to the main room. "'He was feeling depressed, "'having lost his bearings in this unfamiliar world. "'Suddenly he halted. "'I wish you could pinch me,' he said. "'Why?' "'To test whether I am awake, 
Have I really heard a sane and educated lady expressing her belief in the visions of a crystal-gazing adventuress? You have. She believes firmly. So do heaps of women. I hope to heaven you don't, he cried with a sudden intensity. What concern can my faith be to you? she asked. I beg your pardon. No concern at all, he said apologetically. But I generally blurt out what is in my mind. And what is in your mind? I am a person you can be quite frank with. "'I couldn't bear the poem of your life to be sullied by all these vulgarities,' said Jimmy. "'As I remarked to you the first evening I met you, Mr. Padgate,' she said, holding out her hand by way of dismissal, "'you are an astonishing person.' The poem of her life! The phrase worried her before she slept that night. She shook the buzzing thing away from her impatiently. The poem of her life! The man was a fool! End of chapter 2